0: Chapter 41 of The Story of the World A Simple History for Boys and Girls. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Wayne Cook. The Story of the World A Simple History for Boys and Girls by Elizabeth O'Neill. Chapter 41 American Independence. England had won Canada from the French, but she was soon to lose her own great colonies to the south of Canada. Ever since she had had colonies at all, England had said that all their trade should be hers. They were not allowed to trade with any other country but the mother country. The colonies had never complained, but there had been a great deal of smuggling and trade with other countries of which England had taken no notice. Now England— After all, her fighting and her many victories was in need of money, and Grenville, the chief man in the English Parliament at the time, passed his famous Stamp Act. This act said that for all documents written or printed in the American colonies, and for all newspapers, paper should be used which had been first stamped by the English government. The people who bought the paper had to pay for the stamp. This was a new way of taxing the colonies, and they were very angry. They said that they would not use the paper, and in the next year it was given up. But the English Parliament passed a law saying that England had the right to make any laws she pleased for her colonies. This made the colonies still more angry. William Pitt, who had now been made Earl of Chatham, Said that England had not any right to tax the colonies without their consent. Although Pitt had done so much to win India and Canada for England, he felt that the mother country ought to leave her colonies free. He told Parliament that he rejoiced that America had resisted. It was not long before new duties or taxes were put upon certain things going to the colonies from England. The colonists must pay the tax and the English have the money. The people of America had offered to give money to the English government to help it, but they were very angry at this new attempt to tax them. The colonists began to hate every Englishman they saw, and when a quarrel broke out in Boston between some of the people in the street and some English soldiers, in which three of the Americans were killed, the colonists called it the Boston Massacre. At last all the new taxes were taken off, except one on tea. The East India Company brought a great deal of tea from India, and generally they had to pay a tax when it came into England. But the company was very poor at this time, and so the government let it off from paying the tax. This made the company able to sell the tea much cheaper, and now a great quantity of tea was sent over the sea in ships to America but the colonists were told that they must pay just this one tax of threepence on every pound of tea they bought. Even then they would have got the tea at a very low price, but they were very indignant. They thought that the English were playing a trick, and trying to tempt them to buy the cheap tea and pay a tax at the same time. So no one would buy the tea, and ship after ship sailed back to England without unloading. One ship lay at anchor in Boston Harbor. It had been there nineteen days, and yet looked as though it meant to stay there. There was a law that any ship must unload its cargo before twenty days had passed from its arrival. So the men of Boston made up their minds to attack this ship which had broken the law. Some of them painted their faces and stuck feathers in their heads, and pretended to be Indians. They rushed on to the ship, waving pistols and tomahawks. While the English captain and sailors were staring in surprise, they cut open the boxes in which the tea was and emptied it into the sea. They emptied more than three hundred boxes altogether. Next morning, tea lay drifting along all the shore of Massachusetts. It was now England's turn to be angry. Everyone felt that the men of Boston had begun a real revolution. No one would tell who the men were— who had disguised themselves as Indians, and done this thing. And so an order came from England that Boston was to be punished, no ship was to go in or out of its harbor, and its trade was to be taken to the town of Salem. For the future, anyone giving trouble by attacking the English was to be brought over to England to be tried before English judges and juries. Everyone felt that this was unjust, but by this time the colonists had made up their minds to fight for their liberties men from all the colonies met at philadelphia and it was agreed that they should join together and resist the english there was a struggle at a place called lexington which made the two sides bitterer than ever against each other some english soldiers had been sent from boston to destroy some gunpowder and other things which the American side had collected at Concord, eighteen miles away. They had to pass by Lexington, and there they found sixty or seventy men ready to try to stop them. The English fired twice on these men, and then the Americans went away. But eight of them had been killed. The English did their work at Concord, and then set out again for Boston. On their way back— Americans were continually shooting at them from behind buildings and trees and rocks to take revenge for the Americans they had killed on their way to Concord. Many English were killed until at Lexington, 1,000 men from Boston came to their help. There was a fight in which more than 70 English and about 50 Americans were killed. The English really won, and most of them got safely back to Boston but they had lost more men than the Americans, who grew more hopeful when they saw that their volunteers, who were not used to war, could fight quite well against the English soldiers. THE BATTLE OF BUNKERS HILL The first real fight was called the Battle of Bunkers Hill. A few hundred volunteers, men with ordinary clothes and any guns they could get, were placed on the hills outside Boston to defend that city. Although the battle is called after Bunker's Hill, it was really fought on Breed's Hill. About four thousand soldiers attacked them. Three times the volunteers drove them down the hill, but at last the soldiers won their way up, and more than one hundred of the volunteers lay dead. Then another Congress met at Philadelphia, and named Colonel George Washington General of the American Army. And so the man who had fought so well for England at Fort Duquesne was now to fight against her. He soon won Boston back and drove the English soldiers to Halifax. On the 4th of July, 1776, the Congress drew up the famous Declaration of Independence of the United States of America, by which an end was put to any connection of the colonies with the mother country. But there was still fighting to be done— and Washington had a very hard task before him. His soldiers were badly clothed and fed. Neither side had very big armies, but the English had the soldiers who knew already something about fighting. Then some of the colonists, who were called the Loyalists, were against the Declaration, and did not want to break away from England. These were a hindrance. There were many others who hated fighting, and most of the volunteers only joined the army for a certain fixed time, and would then go home, often just when they might have been useful. But the English on their side did very foolish things. They seemed to think that it would be an easy thing to conquer the Americans, or to believe that they were not really in earnest. Pitt, who had known so well how to choose the best men as officers, was no longer in power, and most of the officers on the English side were very poor commanders. Sir William Howe, the brother of Lord Howe, who had been sent by Wolfe to fight in Canada and had died there, and of Admiral Lord Howe, was a very different man from his brothers. He made up his mind to take Philadelphia, and took it, but his armies were all far apart instead of keeping close and helping each other. One of them, under General Burgoyne, surrendered to the Americans at Saratoga in 1777. Next year, the French, who were still full of anger at the great victories England had won over them in India and Canada, agreed to the independence of the American colonies, and France and England were once more at war. Pitt, now old and ill, begged Parliament to try to win the goodwill of the Americans again. You cannot conquer America, he told Parliament, and begged them to show a spirit of friendship and mercy to the colonists. But the king, George III, did not like Pitt, and would not give him any power in the country. George III, who had boasted that he was born and bred of Britain, and was not at all German like his father and grandfather, could not bear the idea of giving in. George had a great deal of power over Parliament, and chose men who governed the country. It was greatly his fault that England had been so foolish in her treatment of America. Pitt made one last great speech in the House of Lords in the April of 1778. He fell back in a fit when his speech was over, for the excitement had been too much for him, and he died a few weeks after. After this there was never any chance of America being won back, England had to fight hard against France and Spain at sea, the French ships helped the Americans to take Yorktown, in Virginia, where Lord Cornwallis and a large army had to give in to them. Lord Cornwallis was the cleverest of the English officers who fought in the war. This was really the end of the war, though New York, which had refused to join in the Declaration of Independence, was still held by the English. Peace was made in 1783 with both France and America. Admiral Rodney had shown by his victories over the French and Spanish fleets that England was still the greatest sea power. But she now openly agreed to American independence, and all the thirteen colonies were now joined as a federal republic. That is, each state governed itself in its own affairs and sent representatives to the Congress which settled the affairs in which they all had a part. The new republic was called, and is still, the United States of America. Its capital was New York. Its first president was the hero, George Washington, old and gray before his time through his labors and suffering for his country. So, England lost her first great group of colonies. A clever Frenchman once said that a colony will always break away from the mother country when it is old enough and strong enough to look after itself. But we have no proof of this. Indeed, England has many colonies today which are proud of belonging to her. But she has learned her lesson, and gives them every liberty she can. Meanwhile, the United States, which at first were the thirteen colonies on the east coast of America, have now spread right across the continent. New states were formed in the West— People from the older states, and from Europe, went out into these wild parts round the Ohio, where the new states called Ohio, Kentucky, and Tennessee grew up. Although these states were called the West, they are, of course, in the eastern part of the continent. They are west from the older states, but beyond them lies more than half the continent. Before the middle of the 19th century, all this was won by the United States. The great province of Louisiana, which Napoleon took from Spain, was sold to the United States for three million pounds. Further west, still, some of the land belonged to the Hudson's Bay Company and some to Mexico, but the United States got it all in the end, until the republic stretched from coast to coast. At first, these settlers in the wild west led a very hard life indeed. There was plenty of rich land, which gave them food but the only way of getting things made in other countries was to have them carried in ships along the rivers. This was a very slow way, when the distances were so great, and it was not until railways were invented that the western states were able to send great quantities of the things they grew to the eastern states and to Europe, and so get back the things manufactured there, and so lead more comfortable and less rough lives." the end of slavery. In the new states, just as in the old southern states, there was a great deal of cotton grown, and slaves were used on the plantations. But everywhere in the nineteenth centuries we shall see there was a new love of freedom growing up, and people began to think it a shameful thing that men should own their fellow men as though they were cattle. About the time that the war between the American colonies and England broke out, a great English judge had declared that any slave setting foot on English soil became free at that moment. In a few years, Parliament did away with all the slave trade in English ships and paid twenty million pounds to slave owners in her colonies in the West Indies and South Africa to set their slaves free. It was not long before other European countries followed her example. It was in the southern states of America that the greatest number of slaves were. The owners of the big plantations had dozens of them, doing the work of the house as well as the plantations. The men would work on the plantations, and the women would be cooks and nurses in the house. Their little children grew up on the plantation and belonged to the master too. Many slaves were happy, for they had good masters, but they were never safe. Cruel masters might beat them, or worse still, sell their wives and children to other people. A family might be broken up and never see each other again. This was very dreadful. At last the men of the northern states said that all the slaves should be set free. A lady wrote a story called Uncle Tom's Cabin, which told all about the sufferings of the slaves, and at last the men of the north could not bear the idea that there should any longer be slaves in their country they wanted a law passed to free all the slaves. They said that the government could give money to the slave owners to make up to them for losing their slaves. But the men of the South were very angry. They said they would never agree to this. In the North, slavery was abolished, and the men of the North were very angry against the South. John Brown, a northerner, went to Virginia, and calling all the slaves he could find to follow him, he told them to fight for their freedom but he was taken prisoner and hanged. He had certainly been acting against the law, but the Northerners were very indignant. At last the southern states said they would have a republic of their own and elected a president. But the Northerners said they had no right to do this, and Abraham Lincoln, the president, felt that America would never be safe and strong if it were broken up like this. Abraham Lincoln was one of the greatest presidents America ever had. He had been a poor boy living in a log cabin in the wild western state of Indiana, but he had read every book he could get and had grown to be a very wise man. He was determined to keep the states together even if slavery had to go on in the South, but the Southerners would not listen to him now. A great civil war broke out. There were heroes on both sides and great victories and defeats. The men of the North marched to a battle singing in chorus, John Brown's body lies a-mouldering in the grave, but his soul goes marching on. For they could never forgive the Southerners for killing John Brown. The greatest leader the South had was Jackson, who was called by his men Stonewall Jackson, because they said when men were falling wounded and dead around him, he stood as steady as ever like a stone wall. In the middle of the war, Lincoln declared that all men were free in North and South alike. Soon afterwards, Stonewall Jackson was killed, shot by mistake by his own men. At last, after two more years of fighting, the Southern Army had to surrender. Almost every family in North and South alike had lost a father or brother or son in the war. But through much suffering, two great things had been done. The States remained united— and the slaves were free. But Abraham Lincoln, who had done so much for his country and had suffered terribly when he thought of all the unnecessary waste of men's lives, was himself to die a martyr at last. He was in the theater at Washington one evening, shortly after peace was made, when a man from the South shot at him and killed him, shouting, The South is avenged. Lincoln was taken back to be buried near his old home in the Wild West. Today, the United States, whose history we have been able to tell only in this short way, is one of the most wonderful countries in the world. It is covered with great cities filled with people who are among the cleverest in the world. The American love of freedom has become a proverb. Even more than England, perhaps, people feel there that every one should have equal chances, that it does not matter how poor a man may be, or how lowly his birth, if he has brains and character. Nearly all the greatest inventions now come from America. New York, with its great, wide, straight streets and its mansions of white marble, where its rich men and millionaires live, is one of the most beautiful cities in the world, and every year millions of people pour from Europe into the United States. Russians, who find that their own government does not give them enough of freedom, Italians, who seek riches which their own land cannot give them, Norwegians, Swedes, Germans, many of the most energetic people from all the countries of Europe are going to seek their fortune in the States. It is interesting to see how these all settle down and mix together to form the American people, all speaking the English language which the Pilgrim Fathers took to the land 300 years ago. One drawback to the good feeling in America is that many of the white people cannot yet believe that the colored people, the Negro descendants of the slaves whom Lincoln freed, are their equals. There is still a great deal of ill feeling, which we can only hope will pass away in time, and the Negroes get their full share of the life of the great republic. End of chapter 41